Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at AntiqueAuctionForum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. Hi everyone, this is Martin with the Antique Auction Forum, and I have a repeat guest on the line. I've actually got to know him over this last year. He was on our podcast about a year ago, Frank Farmer Loomis out of Ohio. How are you doing, Frank? Fine, thank you. How are you, Martin? Good. Welcome back. Right, Martin, I'd just like to graciously point out to you, and take it through, I'm not from Ohio, I'm from Cincinnati. <laughs> Sorry. Cincinnati to Ohio is like Chicago and Illinois. The natives here don't think they're part of Ohio. Oh, okay. I'll I'll keep that in mind. And, um, no, and I'm not a native, but it sort of has rubbed off on me. I see. I see. Well, you know, I was I was at an auctioneer's convention in Cincinnati years ago. I we was, got electricity now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was impressed by the city. I thought it was very clean, and it was a fun city. And I remember the really nice art museum there I went and visited. Yeah, we have a great art museum, the Cincinnati Art Museum. And we have, um, God, I sound like the Parisians now talking about Paris. First of all, let me say thank you for that. Because, um, you know, you're in Paris, and you say how beautiful Paris is. They don't say thank you. They say yes, isn't it? So here I am. Okay. Um, we have a wonderful art museum, and it gets better all the time. And then we have the Taft Museum of Art, which is an 1820s mansion that mm. um, the Tafts lived in. These uh, famous art collectors, and that's one. We, you know, we have lots of wonderful museums. And and you're right, Cincinnati's very, very beautiful. And it seems to me it gets, you know. Um, more and more beautiful all the time with the hills and everything like that. So I'm glad you like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about your show you have, Keep Antiquing. Well, I'm up for five Emmys this year. All right. Wait a minute, that's the wrong <laughs> thing, isn't it? The wrong person? Uh, pardon me? <laughs> oh, that's the wrong person? <laughs> uh, no, yeah. wrong venue. I mean, it's not in Oh, wrong venue. Peabody's. No, it's not Peabody. I don't um, Just making a joke there. Yeah. Uh, I hope I'm making a joke. Uh, you know, I, my problem is with doing the show. It's not a problem, but it's, it, it is in a way. I'm trying to do more and more like you to um, pre-record the shows. Yeah. Because you get such wonderful guests that way. Ha, Oh. You know, but anyway, you do get wonderful guests on the show, and but my situation is, Martin, that I like doing a live show with callers because I think it's more fun to talk to the people and everything. Oh, I, I think it's uh, great. I've listened to your your podcast after the recording, not live. Um, and by the way, anyone can find that on iTunes under Keep Antiquing. Um, but thank you, Martin, for that. Sure, but I've listened to. I don't believe all those things they say about you. <laughs> no, no, well, no, some of them are true. Yeah. But um, anyway, so how do you handle? Because I, not that it's not fun to talk to people like you, but I love having the, you know, the fun of having somebody that you're talking to. You mean live on the phone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I've only had one uh, live caller. I don't have anything to gauge it on. In, uh, uh, but I, I have listened to you talk live, and I thought you were pretty quick on your feet, and that's probably what you like about it is 
you know, people will say, try to describe something and do a terrible job describing it, and you seem to somehow figure out what, what it is they're talking well, about. Well, you probably would be able to do that better than I do, but thank you. But yesterday, not to toot my own horn, but, <laughs> uh, no, yesterday I had this lady that had called in, and she brought an item, two items that she had described on air, and she brought them for me to look at them. And one of them was um, a Meissen creamer, and it was, you know, the real German, you know, with the cross swords mark from the late 1700s, early 1800s. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And she had done a great job of describing it, but I was breathing a sigh of relief because I had, you know, figured it out right. But, you know, wh why she came in was, because we pre-recorded this show, um, I'm a native Chicagoan, and, you know, recently, and this is going on all across the country, uh, Macy's has wiped out the department stores all over the country. And let me just say, I think Macy's is wonderful for New York City. It's mm -hmm. a landmark in New York City, but not in the rest of the country. And I had interviewed this uh, author, which you should get on your show. Her name is Gail Suchek, and she wrote the book Marshall Fields, the store that helped build Chicago. So she was on, and well, a couple of weeks later, Ruthie, well, I call her Ruthie now, we're on old terms, called me up and wanted to know the name of that book again because she wanted to buy it. And so I told her. And then she told me the story how in the 40s, I don't know if she was old enough for the 40s, but in the 1950s, she used to take this train from Cincinnati to James Whittakin Raleigh, Riley, yes, she say, and it was an express train. And if I remember correctly, it took... Uh, four hours from Union Terminal to Union Station. And then she told the story how they would stay at the Palmer House, but she didn't check into the Palmer House. She went straight to Marshall Field. So she was telling me all about this. So yesterday, I didn't tell Gail this, but I arranged to have Gail Suchek on the telephone. And Ruth came, Ruthie came in, and a friend of hers, Alberta, came in. And then I had on the uh, phone Jim McKay, and he is the gentleman who's running the blog uh, if you go to Fields, F-I-E-L-D-S, Fans, uh, Chicago, FieldsFansChicago.org, they had this blog where people tried to, you know, write in about bringing back Marshall Fields. So I had them both on, and Ruth told her story, and then Alberta told her story, and they were both n retired nurses and wonderful. But she said she'd be coming home for work, and she, she, she wouldn't even go home. She'd just cruise up, take, turn around and make a detour and go north on I-75 and go to Chicago to go to Marshall Fields. So wow. we were talking about that yesterday. It was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. So Marshall Fields is actually closed. It, it's Macy's now. Oh, I see what they you're saying. They closed the State Street uh -huh. store, and they call it Macy's. And Marshall Fields was founded in 1852. And um, I know that Macy's bought out a store in San Francisco years ago, and so they've been Macy's there a long time. But it's a terrible disaster in Chicago because really and truly, Marshall Fields was, was founded in 1852. Yeah, and they wiped that name out for it, and it's been a big PR nightmare for Macy's. Would you be satisfied if if it was changed to Macy's Marshall Fields? I don't know. I don't. <laughs> but you see, and and they're they're kind of deleting the State Street store, you know, the flagship store, and I think it's really been a nightmare for them. And the website's very interesting for many reasons, but. It tends to be where everybody, why, 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 I went into State Street and it was dirty and nobody would help me. But they have all of that. But then they have a lot of neat things. That's how I found out about Gail's book. 
the store that Marshall Fields, the store that helped build Chicago, and they have lots of wonderful things in there because Jim put in a story a couple of weeks ago about uh, an architect who found historian did who found um, was given information that Lewis Henry Sullivan, the great architect who designed Marshall Fields friendly and, and they were competitors, but they were friendly competitors. Carson Perry Scott store. Um, in the early 1900s, that he had designed a clock. Have you, you know, the clock that Fields has that sticks out over the street? Are you familiar with that mm-hmm. at all, Martin? Mm-hmm. Well, Carson's was going to have one, so but they never did. But they told that whole story. So I mean, it's a real slice of history in Chicago and everything. So Jim was telling that story. But I, they both loved hearing about. Um, Alberta and Ruthie driving, you know, taking the train or driving up to Chicago. Now, how far away is Cincinnati from uh, Chicago? Chicago? Yeah. In an idealized world, it's probably five and a half to six hours. Oh, so like when I lived in New England, going to New York City was about the same thing. About the uh, yeah, same and I imagine yeah. though that was a more interesting drive because from <laughs> Cincinnati to Indianapolis, which you go through, is a two-hour drive that is the most boring drive in the whole world. <laughs> Yeah, on up from uh, where I used to live in Maine to New York City, you had to, you know, it was a very intense drive, uh-huh. you know, so you never know what type of traffic there was going to be, and sure, you, you know, you couldn't keep your eyes off the road, so you wouldn't fall asleep doing that easy. Right, right. Yeah, yeah it would be stressful, you know, cause, and, but it isn't stressful for that reason here, it's just so boring. <laughs> So tell us about some of the guests you've had on your show in the last, um, say, since we talked. Geez, I think about a year ago, I guess. What are some of the oh things you've done? Oh, my goodness. Whom have I had on my, You know, you'd think I could remember all of that. Now, when did, let me just I'll also add this. You used to, or you still do, I'm not sure, where you go to an event and you'll do the show. Have you done that at all since? Oh, you mean like a museum show? Yeah, have you done any of those? Well, we have recorded some shows like that. I'm just trying to... I, I can't remember. You know, you think I could remember all this. I don't know. I'm trying to think. We have a big Cleopatra exhibition here. Hmm. And and um, we have, you know... And I'm thinking of going down there and recording a show. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm just trying to think, Martin. Have we recorded? I don't think we have in the last year. Has it been a year since I was on your yeah. show? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I don't think we have in the last year. Because I, I know that I, I, I keep telling this sounds so trite, but it's sincere. I like doing a live show, talking to the people. Yeah. To the wonderful listeners and everything. Because I learned from their questions, as you probably know. Yeah. Yeah, you I think I mean? it would be, um, you know, of course, as a podcaster only... Um, one thinks, oh boy, this would be great to do it live and, you know, have a participating audience. Um, you know, so you kind of have the best of both worlds. You have... I want to remember that you said that. You're right. Yeah, you have, you have a recorded podcast after your show and plus you get to talk to people live. So that's pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always, thank you. I always, like, for example... I'm working on right now. I, well, I'll tell you whom I just recorded. I recorded Dr. Ruth Meyer, and it hasn't aired yet um, because she, as she, this is she uses this word. I think she ghost written wrote. Trying to have correct grammar here. She was the ghostwriter um, for uh, Walter Farmer, who was a, a Cincinnatian. Who um, at the? Have you heard of that book, The Government Men? 
No. Uh -huh. By Robert Edsel. Mm. Uh, I've only been trying to line him up for a year. Mm. And yeah, there's some sarcasm there, but nice. <laughs> if he's listening, I hope we get the interview. Anyway, he, Walter Farmer at the end of World War II was about 35 years old, and he was in charge of the government, um, United States government, uh, rescuing and getting hold of German art. Oh, really? Yeah, he's, and he was on A&E, and uh, I mean, it's wonderful what he did, and there were other men, too. And, it did, and he was in charge, and he wrote his memoirs about uh, one museum in Germany being able to handle all the artwork, Whoa. you know, because the Germans had put everything in the salt mines and everything. And it was really very good. And Robert Etzel wrote a, a book that goes along with that about the other men. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, at the end of World War II, the American ally, the American in command said that army said that these paintings that they had been rescuing and preserving for the German people were to go to the United States. So we were going to loot the artwork, you know, like you go to the Louvre and half the stuff that that Napoleon took, you know, illegally. Mm -hmm. And you can tell I'm not a fan of Napoleon. Well, <laughs> Hitler was doing the same thing. I, I mean, no wonder Hitler revered um, Napoleon. But anyway, so he took, they, the, so Walter Farmer and these men stood up to the army guys and said, this is wrong. Well, in defense of the, the, the general, I forget who it was, that told him to send the stuff. He didn't shoot him or anything like in other countries they would have. So all this loot went to the United States. And it did a tour for two years, and during the two-year time, um, it was cleaned and restored. And like Ruth Meyer, who wrote the book, Dr. Ruth Meyer, Ruthie that wrote the book, said that, you know, in, in 45, it was not like it is now to send a painting across the ocean. I mean, these were world-famous paintings, Rembrandt and things like that, mm. you know, the climatic condition and everything. So they toured over the United States for two years, and God love them, Harry Truman saw to it that it went back to the German people. Wow. Which is wonderful. And uh, so she wrote this book about all that. And when Walter, in 1996, uh, Walter, um, Mr. Farmer, won this award from the German government, which I can't remember the name of it, Wiesbaden or something. Um, it's like the Légion d'honneur for France. Mm -hmm. And he won this award. And so Ruth wrote all about that. And, you know, it's an incredible story. And I interviewed her. And then I'm, I'm working on getting Dr. Eric Lee, who is the head of the Kimball Museum in Dallas. Have you ever been there? No, no. Um, I've never been there. I've never been to Texas before. But uh, 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 last month, I had to do a I had to do, I loved it, doing a lecture in Dallas hmm. uh, to the Dallas Women's Club. And then I went to the Kimball Museum of Art. And Dr. Lee gave me a tour of, of that museum. So I'm working on doing... Um, that tour uh, interview with him. Am I rambling on too much for you? Not at all, but I oh, do, okay. do want to roll back to um, the last subject you were talking about, if we could. Um, now, what happens, um, because years ago, way before the Internet and all that, I had, right. I had a painting come up at auction that was a looted painting from Germany, and, mm -hmm. um, and it was bought... Uh, and and sent back from what I understood. I never really got the full story. Can you do you know exactly how that works? Like if one is yeah, um, that's what I was. Yeah, excellent question. And that's how I um, what, what I was getting to with Doctor Lee. But I I didn't want to ramble. I ramble on. I know. Uh, sounds like a good song. Time to ramble <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> 
Yeah. Bad joke. Anyway, this ties in with Dr. Lee. I think, and, and Robert Edsel that wrote the book, The Government, and whom I'm trying to interview, says at the end of his book, it's the tip of the iceberg about the artwork that we're finding that belong to those poor German Jews and the Austrian Jews and the French Jews and everything that those Nazis took from. And it's very exciting to read about all this, and it just seems that people don't get too excited about that. But one institution that does is the New York Times. They do a great job mm. covering all these things. Mm -hmm. And your question about the... So did, you, did those people have to give the painting back then? I don't know, but what, what I had... The follow-up was the person who was bidding on the phone mm -hmm. said that they were going to make sure it was going to go back to the right place. Good for them. Well, here this ties in with the uh, Kimball Museum of Art. Um, Kim, Mr. Kimball was um, a private collector, and, and they built this art museum in the early 80s. In about 1968, I'm doing this off the top of my memory, he bought a painting by Turner, you know, the famous oh, yes. painter. Mm -hmm. The English you know, painter, the, yes. The pre-impressionist impressionist. And I guess it was one of his favorites. Well, he bought the painting. And then when all this, contro not controversy, but righteousness came up about the poor German Jews, the Austrian, the French Jews and everything, the Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E family of Nice, France, the heirs of that tracked it down that Mr. Kimball had bought the painting. Now, he had bought the painting, I'm sure, under, you know, that's why you got to worry about the provenance, and he bought it probably knowing fully aware that it, he thought it never belonged to anybody that had been looted from. So it was in the Kimball Museum collection and, and in the mid or late 90s, and I'm sure, like you bring up, uh, Martin, about the Internet and everything had a lot to do with that. It was traced by the Jaffe heirs to mm -hmm. the Kimball. So in the early, like 201, 203 or something, the Kimball gave it back to the heirs. And I was wow. saying to Eric, Dr. Lee, how wonderful that was. You guys did that. And... You know, it would have been like saying to some, you know, I think his reaction was, it would be like saying to somebody after you use, after nature calls and you use the bathroom, you wash your hands. And he looked at me and said, well, of course, you know, God love him. But isn't that true, Martin, that a lot of museums don't like to give up the loot? Sure, especially when there's, uh, especially if they had a benefactor or someone that paid money for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and Mr. Kimball did. Kimball, I should say, B-E-L, did. And then so then they get, the Kimball Museum of Art gave it back to the heirs. And then it was auctioned um, at Christie's, I believe it was, or Sotheby's. I think it was Christie's. But they told the whole provenance about this. And these, these were probably the children or the grandchildren. These people were, were really, I mean, my God, George V. And for the father, Mr. Jaffe gave him a big gift and everything. And the, doesn't look very good for my beloved France, but the Vichy government, you know, the puppet government for the Nazis, took that the paintings from these people. They lived in Nice and auctioned them. Hmm. So the heirs got the painting back, and I forget how much it sold for at auction. But guess who bought it at auction? The uh, Kimball Museum of Art. They did. Wow. That's pretty honorable, isn't it? Yeah. It is, and I loved going around the Kimball Museum with Eric because he's the curator and the head honcho there. And what he talks about, 
these paintings, have you ever gone around, Martin, where a museum curator, not to knock them, but some of them are rather dry, and, mm -hmm. you know, boring and everything? Well, Eric goes around and they've been, they're adding to their collection and he, oh, he's just like they, and he was thrilled to tell me about that. And then they had bought a, um, the oldest known painting uh, by Michelangelo. Really? And they had, and he wasn't relishing this, but they bought it from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the Met had bought it at auction and had it cleaned and realized that it was, you know, an early uh, Michelangelo. And which is kind of unusual because we mostly think of him as a sculpturer, right? Right. Well, you're actually saying his name the proper way too, which is nice to hear. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, did you hear about the the painting that was in Buffalo, New York? No. Who's that? Uh, there's supposed to be an original, uh, possibly original Michelangelo that was behind a sofa for 30 years, and um, it was a relative who was uh, tracing back to uh, family lure. And then he uh, contacted an expert, and the expert said it's indeed uh, an original piece. Now, I don't know if it's been totally authenticated yet, and I wondered, uh, we're certain to hear about that if that goes to auction. Yeah, that'll be, and some people say it isn't because they're trying to buy it or whatever. Yeah. That's interesting. Another Michelin. Well, they, and, and they got it from the Met because uh, Eric was telling me the Met had to sell some of its paintings because it's had financial. You know, yes. I'm sure be giving up some of their antiquities back to Rome has had something to do with that. I think we're going but, to see a lot of that. But I think it's very exciting to follow these things because I greatly believe that, as you do, the item should go back to the people that it to whom it belonged to originally. Sure. Yeah, I think we're going to see a, a little bit, or, or, or actually a lot of that with museums, with the uh, cuts in funding, um, that you're going to see some deaccessions just for some places to keep the doors open. Right. You know, uh, yeah, because there was another article in the Times about that a lot of museums are selling some of their collections to keep the doors open. And I guess a lot of people think they shouldn't do that. Is that right, Martin? Yeah. You know, a, a, a lot of people also have the misconception that if they bequeath something to a museum, oh. that it's going to be on display. And uh, yeah. nine times out of ten, you know, I hate to say this because it's a negative, um, it, it'll either sit in storage or it'll be deaccessioned. Right. You know. Well, I always tell you know clients if you're doing that and, and you feel strongly that it shouldn't be sold, you ask those people. But I said, yes. if you do donate it to the museum, you're really helping them because it's going to go to a good cause. And That's I right. have found more and more people are are willing when I've done appraisals to you know if the museum sells it. That's fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I think, I don't think the public, do you agree, is so aware of that. For every one item you see in most museums across the country, they might have five to ten items in storage. That's right. I've been in, uh, I've been in the Denver Art Museum storage. I've been in uh, a num uh, working uh, with a deacquisition. I've been in uh, in New Hampshire in the uh, Historical Society's archive. Is uh -huh. unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And, you know, it's like at the Cincinnati Art Museum, it's the same way. And I remember one time I was writing at the Art Institute of Chicago, the place that I adore of all of them, and um, they were showing me their storage area, and they were very proud of it, and justifiably so. But, my God, it was almost as beautiful as the displayed area. 
Well, uh, it's really amazing for someone that's never been in a, a place like that in a storage area of a museum and how absolutely cautious they are. With um, um, we, I, I was actually moving things for auction at the Denver Art Museum, and you could not bring a moving blanket into the place to wrap something with because of their fear of, uh, of, the, of any type of insect or anything like that. And then of the double doors that are all like uh, vacuum-sealed doors, um, you have to go through one before you open the other, and it's really, they're very, very cautious with their, with their items. Uh, you know, I kind of think that this country, we kind of overreact on a lot of that <laughs> stuff. You know, I was taking it that way, and it was a lot of extra work because there were 900 items that uh, uh-huh. we, we uh, took out of the museum, and uh, it was, we probably were there another 10 hours with the extra work we had to do. But um, I totally understand because if they if they let those policies drop, then uh, how far can they drop? And you know things could yeah, happen. Yeah, you're probably right. You know better. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> so I was talking to Sally Schwartz out your way, sort of out your way in Chicago the other day, who you know pretty well, and she's uh, she's a real character. She's great, and she said to me when I told her that I was going to speak to you, she said to talk to you about your book signing. Um, at Michigan Ave. Oh, you know, um, she helped me on that I, a few years back. I went um, to her wonderful Chicago antique market on um, West Randolph Street, and the night before, she helped me, and, and we arranged a book signing at Borders and Music on Michigan Avenue, right across from um, the water tower there, you know, on Michigan Avenue. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just, I was just so nauseating. I was so excited and, <laughs> and everything. So, uh, just thrilled about the whole thing. And when a publisher signs up somebody for an author, at least this is the way it used to be. It's probably changing now. Maybe you know more about that than I do, Martin. But they want an author who's not going to just sit there at a book signing. You got to do a song and dance with those people. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of like trying to sell a car or something. you got to do a song. You know, you just, you know, it's not that there's like 300 people lined up. Maybe in the beginning it's that way. So anyway, we had this book signing at, at um, Borders and Music on Michigan Avenue. And I'm just, that's my hometown. And I was thinking about my grandmother. And I, we walked up to Michigan Avenue one Easter. And I thought, oh, if Graham could see me now, I hope she knows she'd be so thrilled. So I walk in the front door, and they're very, very nice people. I think his name was Chuck, the manager. He says, Mr. Loomis, he says, we got to tell you, there's torna- there are tornado warnings. <laughs> and, and, the, <laughs> and, the, and the weather just uh, affects everything. Mm-hmm. So Sally was there, God love her. And I said, well, you know, she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I said, well, you know, the show should go on. And I said, okay. So we go up to the third floor of this huge bay window overlooking Michigan Avenue and water tower places, huge, beautiful room. You know, I had to be there for an hour and a half. Two people show up. Oh. Besides wonderful family. Oh. And the management of Borders Immune. So anyway, the one woman was kind of uppity. She thought she was better than everybody else. And she brought stuff for me to look at, didn't buy a book. So, you know, you have to sit there and you have to talk. Pardon me, Martin? No, I'm just laughing. She didn't even buy a book? No, you have to talk to him. So then there was this other man, older guy. And I said, oh, what do you like to collect? And I thought he said, Craftsman, if I remember correctly. So I pull out the book, um, 
gee, I wrote, I can't remember the title of it. Uh, Antiques 101 was uh, Antiques 101. So mm -hmm. I pull out my book and I look in the craft. Oh, here it is. Blah, blah, blah. And what's your name? Blah, 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 blah. Well, he didn't buy a book. So I think it was an hour, longest hour of my life. <laughs> and he left. And the management is just laughing and laughing <laughs> and laughing. So Chuck comes up to me and says, well, do you know who that was? And I thought, no. I, you know, I thought he was going to say the brother of the mayor or I don't know. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He says, that's a homeless man that came in off the street. <laughs> so Sally's laughing and laughing. And she gave me one of the best compliments. She said, Frank, you could interview a brick wall and make it interesting. All right. So, so the, the man left, and I think that humor is one of God's greatest gifts to us humans, besides dogs. And I was just, I'm kind of proud of that, because, you know, I did try to sell the book. Well, then the Chuck told me that that previous February, there was some famous chef that came in. And they said, Mr. Chef, when he walked in the front door, there's a, a warning for a blizzard. And we have to warn you, we think, you know, that what they said to me. And his reaction was, you know. The show should go on. So they said, okay. So he was doing, I think, appetizers that night. So he made all these beautiful pâtés and appetizers, and nobody showed up. Mm. So he and I are both in the same therapy class. We're both <laughs> trying to get over that, that heartache. So he said, well, why don't you let those poor homeless people come in that are camping around the water tower there, literally, you know, from the memorial that didn't burn in 1871. So they let in all these uh, poor homeless people, and they come in and they taste the appetizers, which were mostly pâtés, <laughs> and they said, oh, we don't like this liver, and walked out. <laughs> so at least I didn't have appetizers left over. Yeah. But the sad thing about all of this was, and sometimes big companies cannot think out of the box, was that the next morning, Sally, God love her, Sally Schwartz had me on the Fox News channel, uh, you know, in Chicago doing the verbal appraisals on air. And we could have, and they had, and Barnes and uh, Borders and Music had nobody lined up for that room. We could have done a book signing the next night, which was Saturday, and we could have announced it on the Fox News. Because oh, yeah. they had me doing appraisals, I don't know, oh God, I think it was four hours, but then they, I wasn't on the whole time. They'd do 10 minutes and live and stuff. And we could have announced that, and Chuck called the man, head management and everything, but they couldn't think out of the box, unfortunately. Yeah. So, you know, I saw the humor of it all, and I'm kind of proud of the fact because um, if you're an author, and and then I was telling people, you have to do a sign, and then I was t I tell that story, and I said, you know, that's the last book signing I've done, and and actually, Martin, I hate doing book signings, but that's not true because I did one um, six months later or seven in Richmond, Virginia after a lecture and it was like a Jessica Fletcher book signing. I mean they were lined up and it was great fun, so I should remember that. But yeah, it's a lot of work to being uh, you know, doing a book signing and everything like that. No, I do remember I hope I get to do it again, but you know Yeah, do you have a well first of all, in our last podcast we talked about your books that you've written. Now you're doing something with Antique Trader Can you Right, I do a column um, called Antique Lumisms about evaluation and, you know, you know how much it's worth, and then they have been running a serialized version. I'm not the book I, that I went through the heartache of the book signing at Borders and Music on Michigan Avenue, but a previous one um, that was called Secrets to Affordable Antiques. Oh, okay. 
And, um, and uh, so Eric Bradley, the young and talented uh, editor there, has been running that serialized. So every every week it comes out, or what happens with that? Uh, uh, well, they're changing their format maybe once a month or every two weeks. I see. Uh-huh. So that's great. So that's... You know, it's like a bath, whether you need it or not, every two weeks. <laughs> Your thought's going to say something else. but I just... <laughs> Yeah. Secrets of Affordable Antiques. It's that's uh, I think that's a great uh, title. First of Thank all, you. and uh, I remember you and I had talked a little bit about that. How uh, chairs are the best bargain you can get. You know, I think they still are. Do yeah. you? Oh yeah, yeah. Why is that? I think because they're plentiful. First of uh-huh. all, you know they're very the early chairs. Uh, chairs in general that are handmade are extremely difficult to make right. Uh-huh. You know correctly. But that was the number one thing made, you know. Well, because because right, it was the the thing you needed the most. That's right. Yeah. And they weren't they. I'm trying to remember this. Am I wrong? Weren't they real statusy in the Middle Ages? You weren't allowed to have one. I don't. I don't know that. uh, I I don't know that. But I. I I do know that uh, for say American federal period and earlier that a uh, a bed was the number one. Thing in the household, it was. And yeah, that was the number one thing in the household. That. And uh, to have to, for someone in a, an upholsterer or a mattress maker was held in high esteem in this local society. Well, I have ancestors from Connecticut. Peter Loomis that was a cabinet maker. Uh huh. Really? I, I didn't know that. Well, I, one of my favorite movies of all time. Have you ever seen it? Drums along the Mohawk. No. Takes place um, after the French and Indian War um, in upstate New York, Henry Fonda and Claudette Colbert and the wonderful Edna and May Oliver. Anyway, and they're not very nice to the Indians in this thing, but the Native Americans are coming. And they just are burning down Edna May Oliver's house. Mm. So she climbs in her bed and she says, my husband made this bed and I treasure it. I'm not leaving. <laughs> so it ties in, you know, that the beds were the the important thing. And it's kind of cute, though, because the, the Native Americans don't want her to die. <laughs> so they're kind of sweet. They take her out of the house in the bed. Oh, so she's in the bed if I could get saved. But it ties in with what you're saying, you know, from that period that... Um, Beds were high status things. Well, they were because they also had in the cities, they had fire brigade or fire buckets um, hanging right by the doorway, and inside uh-huh. inside the fire buckets was two things: a valuable bag for them uh-huh. to gather up their silver and whatever, and then a, a bed wrench for quickly knocking down the bed and getting it out onto the street so it wouldn't burn down with the house. Mm. So I know we're getting way off all topics, and we're actually. We've actually ran quite uh, long here in time, so... Oh, I'm always long-winded. Cut me <laughs> off. <laughs> but that's good. So, hey, Frank, so can you give out your your uh, web address for everyone, please? Keep Antiquing, one word, keepantiquing.org. Great. And uh, we really appreciate uh, you being our guest again. Thank you for having me on, Martin. What's that? I said thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's always I'm fun. to be gracious here. <laughs> <laughs> It's always fun talking to you, Frank, and uh, thanks so much. You're welcome. And this is Martin Willis with Frank Farmer Loomis, and we're signing off.
everyone. We always appreciate our listeners, so feel free to email us with any ideas, questions, or suggestions to info at antiqueauctionforum.com. We do incur several expenses for this show. It is a free show. However, if you wish to donate, we do have a PayPal button at the bottom of our webpage. If you'd like to help us out for free, please tell a friend about us or rate and leave us a review on iTunes or any other podcast websites that we belong to. If you're planning on purchasing something through Amazon, please use our Amazon search engine located at the bottom right-hand corner of our webpage. It won't cost you a penny more, and we may get a few dollars to help us out. As always, we thank you for listening.